0: Welcome everyone to episode 54 of the Rust Belt Rundown, a production by Workforce LLC. I'm your host, Paul O'Connor. And on this episode, we are joined by Elad Grinot, Dean of the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. Dr. Grinot, welcome to the podcast. We appreciate you being here.
1: Thanks for letting me be here, Paul. Please uh, call me a lot.
0: So it's Monday morning. We got our coffee. It's early. We're ready to talk about a lot of different things. Let's jump into your career. The majority of it spent in higher education. I want to first start with how you've seen the landscape shift for the better in higher education and potentially even for the worse since you started your career.
1: Yeah, I would love to dig into that. My The majority of my career, though, has not been in higher education. The majority of my career has been in venture capital and uh, marketing strategy. I've been in that for a lot longer than in higher education. I've gotten into higher education about 15 years ago. It does feel like It's the majority of my career. It's almost like dog years, uh, but we can talk about that maybe as a response to a different uh, question. So every
0: one year in in higher ed is seven years in real life. (laughs)
1: Something like that. Um, But in all seriousness, the importance of uh, that distinction to me is the fact that I'm a business school dean who's a business guy. I think uh, that's not as common. And maybe that's starting to answer your question. That's not as common as I would like it to be. Um, In fact, uh, sometimes I get questions to the tune of, well, you're a business guy, what are you doing in a business school? And I always find that really weird because imagine if somebody said that to a med school dean, what, you're a a practicing physician? Why are you in a a med school dean? Of course, uh, that's what you need uh, in in higher ed, especially in business higher ed, which is uh, where my passion lies. And so I think that maybe answers a little bit of uh, the beginning of the answer to your question about uh, the landscape of uh, higher ed and maybe opens the door to some uh, further questions down the road. I think one of the most important things in business higher ed is being applied, being practical, providing skills That are universal on the one hand, but also uh, allow for graduates to break rules to break out of the proverbial box and uh, to be creative, to be entrepreneurial. And I think these are the type of things that we need to be doing in business higher ed. And I make the distinction between business higher ed and higher ed because higher ed is too broad of a category. I can't speak to philosophy curricula across liberal arts schools in the United States. I have no idea about that. My opinion is as good as yours, probably less good than yours.
0: Why do you think that's the reaction? You know, going back to like your comparison to a med school doctor and, and then practice it, like, why do you think that's the reaction from higher ed?
1: Oh, it's the reaction because that's the uh, reality that we have created. It's an earned reaction. The the academia and higher ed in general, but more specifically in, in business schools, has over the last few decades really emphasized the theoretical background of business, which is phenomenal and really important. I earned my PhD in marketing. I've gone through all the theory, and that's great. But again, if you equate it to a med school and uh, you were to take a surgery class uh, from a theoretical surgeon, I wouldn't really uh, want to be in your operating room when the time comes. And so the reaction is that because we have created, a, a broadly speaking, a situation where most business schools are focused on theoretical research, as important as it is. And most business deans and administrators within higher ed have very little to no experience in actual business. And that is why we get that reaction, which is the flip side of what it should be. The reaction towards folks who are not experienced in business, who don't have a background, should be, well, how are you a business school dean? Or how are you a department chair if you've never actually done it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I feel as if some colleges, universities are valuing you know, what it, because I, I imagine now this is, this is me guessing, but I imagine a large percentage of your job is running a business school. And then the other half is like, okay, educating students, making sure they get good jobs when they leave, you know, career pathways, all of that, which is to me, why it's so beneficial to have someone who is a business person in that role. But I imagine that sometimes maybe a college university would put a premium on the former, right? Like, let's just get someone that knows how to run a business school, not necessarily anyone who's had any business experience.
1: I would argue that it's one and the same. You're running budgets, people, processes. Uh, it just happens to be within higher ed. And so if you fall in line with the tradition of having someone who is a theoretical professor, meaning they never worked a day in their lives, went and pursued and earned a, a Ph.D. in uh, management. OK, and then they did a pretty decent job of being a tenure track professor and they earned their tenure. Right. Still still with zero work experience, producing papers that three people read at best. But that's the requirement. Again, I did all that. I appreciate it. I get it. But if that becomes the only thing, then you got a problem. So let's say you do all of that and you're a half decent professor in the classroom. And then it's your turn to be a department chair uh, because it sort of cycles through the the faculty. And then uh, let's say you don't screw that up all of a sudden you have an opportunity to perhaps be an assistant or associate dean. And sure enough, if you don't screw that up, all of a sudden you have an opportunity to be a dean. Now now you're running uh, an enterprise without any experience. And by the way, in a business school, it's not as bad as some other places. Imagine you're a biologist in the biology department and you have your PhD in biology, right? And then somehow you become a department chair, end up a dean, Uh, end up a president, you have zero training experience or skills in terms of managing an enterprise. You don't know how to read a uh, financial statement. You don't know how to um, uh, how to lead in terms of a a business, an enterprise and a track record of that. And yet you're running hundreds of millions of dollars. That, in essence, is the issue with higher education.
0: So that's a good transition. We talk to people all over the the business world, a lot of manufacturers, a lot of people in the manufacturing industry. But we talk a lot about the value of the four-year degree and how it's shifted, you know, from my parents' generation to my generation as millennials. And so let's start with how do you think traditional four-year schools need to adjust especially after the pandemic, to keep up with the new generation and their needs.
1: Again, I'm gonna to have to break down the categories. I can't speak for
0: four years school. Yeah, we can focus on just business, yep. Even that, the category is
1: too broad, because in general, when you say business schools, not you or me, when people say business schools, when you see it in the press, when you see it covered broadly in the public, the, the consciousness towards a higher caliber schools or higher profile schools sort of shifts over there, right? And so we're thinking, oh, Harvard Business School, Stanford Business School, all that, that's great that's not representative of business schools It would be like saying that Rolls-royce is representative of the car category. And so even when we talk about business higher ed it would be like talking about cars right The next question would be well what type of cars and and then what price range and uh, you know uh, what other features and, and so we, we need to break it down. so so having said that, I think it's pretty clear uh, or at least it'll become clear what my opinion is about business schools the way I see them and when I when, when I say the way I see them is let's talk about business schools between the coasts okay where we are. Right. Uh, if you're in the East Coast, you're focused on uh, hyper-competitive finance and a variety of uh, other things. Uh, high-tech is becoming uh, a, growing, a growing sector on the East Coast. If you're in the West Coast, definitely it's high-tech and a variety of other things. But if, if you're in between, a business degree actually really matters. And so every time I hear you know a business mogul like, uh, like uh, Elon Musk say, yeah, hey, you can drop out of school, he can drop out of school, okay? For us here in the Midwest, an MBA and, or a four-year degree or an academic associate's degree is absolutely critical. It makes a difference. And so the question is, what do we do as business schools in terms of what, uh, as you were saying, what, what businesses are saying? And that's where our, that's what our role is. Our role is to be informed by business, to be informed by industry, by the way, I would rather lead the way and rather than follow them, right? Because business is always rushing at a much faster pace than higher ed, which is a problem. We need to be uh, rushing ahead of business to provide it with talent, which is, by the way, our mission, right? We're the only function in an ecosystem that is charged with producing talent into that ecosystem. That is literally our charge. So the attitudes towards a, a four-year degree. Are way too broad for me to respond to. I would, I would respond towards a four-year business degree in a business school whose mission is to produce talent into the e- ecosystem, which is what the Bowler College of Business uh, does.
0: I got a couple follow-ups. You mentioned that you know business is always you know ahead of higher ed, and it, that makes sense, right? I mean, they're on the front lines every day. How do we bridge that gap? yeah between the two because we talk to people in either the manufacturing space or business or finance or high tech and they're now looking at ways to train their own employees right like hey we're not going to send you to business school we're going to do it ourselves how do we bridge that gap
1: like we earned that we earned our partners in the ecosystem saying we don't need you we'll do what you do ourselves we earned that because we produced we the general we produced graduates who don't have all the skill sets that some employers need. Most of that gap is in technology. And I'll talk about that um, if you give me a chance a little bit later. And so what do we expect them to do? Uh, if we're not preparing graduates the way they need them, they're gonna do it themselves. And once they get into our market, that's a slippery slope. And now you're getting employers saying, well, forget forget the, uh, you know, the business degree, we'll teach you how to do it. Again, we earned it, we need to claw that back. Employers don't wanna be institutions of higher education. Employers want to focus on their bottom line, producing what they need to be producing, expanding their markets, whatever their goals are. They don't want to do that. The reason they do it is they feel that they don't get a complete product from us, product being a graduate. We're an interesting industry in the sense that our students are both our customers and our product. Again, something very unique uh, about higher ed. But the point is, and, and I try to do that again as a business guy running a business school, I have advisory boards of business people who are uh, helping us shape what we need to be doing internally so we produce the product that they need to be consuming externally. So I have a dean circle, as it's called, which is uh, comprised of more senior executives. Most of them are alums, which makes sense. They're loyal to the institution. They're trying to help us out. But I also established a young alumni advisory board because there's a huge difference between my alumni who are in their late 20s uh, to my alumni, uh, all due respect, who are my age. Uh, in terms of just how they see things, what they think is necessary, and so that's what we're, we're we're trying to do. And so we established goals, we established foundations of what do we need to be doing, uh, informed by our partners in industry, to make sure that our product, our students, our graduates are what they need, and they don't need to be further polished, or even worse, just told to skip this, come to us, and we'll we'll let you we'll let you do it.
0: How much of that? you know, we mentioned that businesses lead the way and now they're, you know, maybe they're going to try to train their own employees. How much of that do you think is your customer looking at the price tag and saying, I just can't do it, right? Like it, it isn't a business decision. It isn't a wise business decision anymore. And so I, that would be part one. And then part two would be, you know, how do you differentiate John Carroll Compare, you know, if someone comes to you and says, okay, great, I'm looking at these three schools and John Carroll's one of them. What's, what's the pitch?
1: So let's start with the price tag. Again, if I told you a car is expensive, you would start asking, well, which car? And what does it have and why? And and so price tag for higher ed is way too broad a category. The way the undergraduate student pay structure or tuition structure is sort of planned out across across higher ed is that you pay the same for an English degree, which by the way, I earned as an undergrad, and a business degree. It's the same price tag. There's a problem right there. So if somebody tells me, that the ROI isn't that impressive, I would say the ROI for what? Okay, uh, Because I could show you the numbers. The ROI for a business degree is very much worth it. Now, um, having said that, there's there's we, we need to recognize that the price tag in higher ed is very similar to what the price tag used to be in the automobile market pre-pandemic, in the sense that Whatever the sticker price is on the window, no one's paying that. And so uh, when you look at official tuition rates, undergraduate education, MBA is a different story. If you want to uh, expand that, I'll be happy to. But if you look at the undergrad experience, almost no one pays sticker. In fact, um, most institutions that get federal money have to publish what their discounting rate is. That's That's a higher ed term. And the discounting rate, is not, it's not uncommon for it to be 50%. And so you really need to look at what out-of-pocket costs are, uh, as opposed to what the price tag is. Don't ask me why we're playing this game. I think it's silly, right? If I'm going to tell you something is sixty grand, but I'll give you a $34,000 scholarship, why are we playing this game? And, and I, I don't get it. Um, and again, maybe it goes back to what I was saying before. Institutions are run by people who haven't necessarily done any business in their lifetime. Uh, and so don't know anything about pricing or don't know anything about, comes to determining how you, A, set price, B, communicate it, and C, market it, right? And again, all due respect to boards of uh, trustees all over the country who have many seasoned business people sitting on them, but boards don't run institutions. And so it's, a, a you know, I, I'm sorry to be sort of splitting down the answer because the ROI on an English degree, I'm telling you from experience, is not identical to the ROI on getting a uh, business degree from the Bowler College of Business, and I'll I'll transition into the second part of your question, what differentiates business schools in general? And of course, I'm representing my school. There's a reason I'm at Bowler. I always wanted to come to Bowler. I think it's the best business school, certainly in Cleveland and Northeast Ohio and probably beyond. And there's a reason I wanted to come there. And here's, here's why, right? When you look at business schools, there's a variety of things you need to look into. Number one, which is sort of the cost of business, right? Just being in the category is having accreditation from the highest level, which in our business is called AACSB, the Association to Advance Collegiate uh, Schools of Business. Can't believe I got that, and that was on the fly. But the idea is you gotta have that. If you don't have that, you're substandard. Now, by the way, just so it's clear, Harvard doesn't have it, but they don't need it. If you're not Harvard, if you're among the rest of us, it really matters to be credited by AACSB, and only six or 7% of business schools have that worldwide. And then Bowler has gone a step further. Not only are we accredited by them for business, we're accredited by them for accounting. Now that puts us at 1% worldwide. Now you're talking about differentiation just in terms of who we are, the recognition that we get. And then you got to look at the what does the business school offer? And that's where we put up our five things that we we're focusing on. Uh, I'm a strategy guy, so uh, I'm a big believer in you know no, no more than three to five strategic imperatives. Uh, the human mind can't process or remember more than that certainly not long-term. And so the five things uh, that we decided to focus on as a business school, which is dually accredited, are, first of all, we are focused on what we call ecosystem impact. So uh, we are citizens of Northeast Ohio, of Cleveland, uh, of Ohio, of the Midwest. And as such, it is our responsibility, as I referenced before, to produce talent into this ecosystem beyond just business, right? We look Not only are we an accredited business school at the top level of business schools, but we're also within a Jesuit university. We have a Jesuit mission that seeks to do well onto others, right? Serve others within our community and beyond. And so as a business school, we feel we actually have a lot of tools to serve others, marginalized populations, underrepresented populations, really going into our community and serving them with our business uh, skills and knowledge and know-how. So that's one thing, ecosystem impact. The other thing that really matters, and I think employers that are watching this uh, uh, might find something they can connect to, is we're big believers in learning by doing, right? So our our accounting students this time of year do taxes for families of low means as part of an IRS program. Our finance students manage a student-managed investment fund And we're just about now to launch a student-managed venture capital fund that will invest in student entrepreneurs. Again, learning by doing. Our um, marketing students have their own advertising agency in-house in the college. So learning by doing is really critical for us, and that's one part of it. The second part of it is we implemented a 100% internship requirement. And so nobody can go through Bowler and graduate I won't sign their diploma unless they've taken at least one internship. And we all know why that's so important. And obviously at least the jobs, but more than that, it gives students opportunities to weigh what they wanna do, what they don't wanna do. And in fact, most students, while they have to do one, will probably do two and three internships uh, throughout their time at Bowler. And again, that differentiates. The other thing that we're doing is we're internationalizing the curriculum. So we're putting a lot more opportunities for students to interface with global markets in person uh, by traveling there on short term study tours on semester long experiences on a year-long uh, experience, and also by increasing our international population, we can't just be standing in the in, a, in the classroom and saying, you know, it's a global economy, it's a flat world, and that's it. We're going to stay here in the Midwest. And so we're really pushing that. And the last thing we're focusing on is our graduate degree, the MBA, for a variety of reasons. First, it, it's it's a competitive marketplace out there, as you know. Uh, and so the MBA really, really at this point, uh, becomes a strong competitive edge for talent out there. We know that employers are really, really pressed for for talent. We know that because when employers come to our uh, career fair, they are increasingly asking to see our freshmen. Paul, our freshmen, were high schoolers three weeks before the uh, job fit, okay? And, and employers want to see them because they want to start building relationships with them. And so we, we encourage them to do that. So these are the things that differentiate us. We focus on learning by doing, we focus on impacting our ecosystem, we focus on internship, we focus on international components in our curriculum, and we focus on a very strong MBA program. When you put it all together with our accreditation level, we are quite worth the ROI, both for the undergraduate degree and the MBA.
0: I'm sold, man. Sign me up I want to go back to 6% of business schools are accredited. How do you get why is that
1: It's hard to be accredited. it's an incredible process by the way anyone who's dealt with any sort of accreditation agency knows how hard it is. It's pretty much the same thing. Uh, it's just that the subject changes right and so you need to have certain quotas for doctorally qualified faculty you need for those faculty to produce certain t- types of what we call intele- intellectual contributions throughout their time. Uh, They need to have documented service to the community, to the university. There's a variety of categories. There's, there's, uh, if I remember correctly, 11 standards that you have to uh, abide by. And uh, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. And so, obviously, if it were, everybody would have it. And and so, it's incredibly difficult to obtain accreditation and then to maintain it. Uh, In fact, we're in our self-study year now. Our, Our peer review team is coming next year to extend our dual accreditation. It's a hard process. Phew.
0: Yeah, I don't envy you on that. Thank you for listening to the Rust Belt Rundown. We'll be right back after a quick break. Welcome back to the Rust Belt Rundown. Let's shift gears to AI. ChatGPT has just been everywhere in the news and the coverage kind of has been 60 minutes just did a whole thing you know on Bard which is Google's new one uh, last night as it relates to educating students specifically in business school have you seen this affect work have you had to put in new policies like like where are you guys at with no, it oh we're
1: not putting in new policies if any if anything needs to happen is faculty need to modify the way they teach if you teach in a way where chat gpt can answer your questions you're not doing it right by the way you haven't been doing it right for decades and so, quite the contrary. I insist on teaching uh, at least one MBA class if I can. I enjoy teaching. It's why I got into higher ed in the first place. That's a whole other podcast, maybe. And so, you know, I got in for teaching, and all of a sudden, I'm running the show. <laughs> but but I insist on teaching one. And 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 my MBA class, when we started this semester, uh, ChatGPT came out the night before and so we meet for our first meeting and said hey guys you know how i signed two books uh, for this course one of them is worthless now send it back to amazon and that was an integrated marketing book that ChatGPT gpt can do there's no need for us to even worry about and so we sent th- th- the book back and now halfway through the semester most of our guest speakers are talking about that. And as they're working on their semester project, they said, you know what, actually do it with AI, do the whole thing with AI. And so, the, I mean, it's there, it's a tool, that's the whole point. And so if we teach it in a way, if we teach whatever we teach in a way where ChatGPT can do it, we're not doing it right. We need to be teaching synthesis rather than analysis and whatever a computer can do, it will. Synthesis, it's not that great. I don't know if you played around with ChatGPT, but I'm obsessed with it. And so I try to get it to tell me things that I don't know about my area of expertise, okay? And it still hasn't been able to do that. Luckily, I feel good about that. But I I try to push it, right, because it's all about the prompts. I try to push it to tell me something I don't know about the very narrow field of expertise that I have, and so far it hasn't. And so I'm not worried about that. In fact, I find it quite amusing, but also telling that the initial reaction from many academics when ChatGPT came out was to initiate a petition to, to ban its use. You know, in the 60s, they were trying to ban calculators in
0: in, in class. I saw I saw your post. I was going to bring that up. I was laughing at it's that. It's so funny. <laughs> it's ridiculous.
1: What are you doing, right? And and so I'm quite the opposite of that. You know, and again, maybe it goes back to the fact that I've been doing venture capital investing in early stage technologies for the last 30 years. I see what's coming. There's no point in fighting it. In fact, you, yeah. look, you look pathetic when you do that. And worse than that, you are doing a huge disservice to your student. Yep. And, and so again, if you're teaching something, In a way where ChatGPT can help a student cheat, you're not teaching it right.
0: And that's such a good approach to it, right? Because first comes the fear around how is this going to affect our current state? And then the fear comes, well, is this going to replace jobs? And AI has replaced jobs. That's a fact. And it will continue. However, it also creates jobs, right? So now we've already seen... People looking for a chat GPT prompt engineer for market, you know, whatever it is like that is going to be now a new uh, call, it like a certification, something maybe you can get at at John Carroll if you're majoring in marketing in the business school. Like and so if that's the approach, well, I'd just say that's the right approach.
1: When I mentioned the uh, four things that we focused on, the fifth thing really is technology. So we're initiating uh, what we call a tech core. Right. Uh, So a liberal arts core has been around forever. Everybody needs to take it, especially if they go to liberal arts schools, no matter what their major is. Right. Which I am a big fan of. Like I said, my undergraduate uh, major is, is in liberal arts. And I think it served me well for, as a foundation as I was building my identity and and, and and my career. It's not enough anymore, right? So a liberal arts uh, course, critical, just like, like it always has been, is just isn't sufficient. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to implement, we're building one course in every discipline that is tech-focused. The next level would be two courses. One, once I have two courses at MV. By the way, the way higher ed works, it's, it takes longer than I would like it to. But once we have two courses in every discipline, then I can implement what I call a tech core. And, and that will alleviate the tension between employers saying, hey, you're, you're giving us an, an unfinished product to, uh, hey, now we can hire these people. And so accounting students have to know blockchain. Uh Finance students mm-hmm. have to understand fintech. Again, they don't need to be developers. They don't need to be coders. By the way, no one needs to be developers or coders anymore. Could chat could do it for you? Literally, I asked yeah. him yesterday for a code for something. It's unbelievable, right? But you need to be what I call tech proficient, right? As a business school graduate, you need to be tech proficient. Uh, You need to be able to, just like we teach accounting to every student, even if they're not an accounting major in the sense that, okay, you're going to be in supply chain, but you're going to be working with accountants. You need to understand when they talk about spreadsheet, you need to understand what they're talking about. Same thing with technology, right? You don't need to know. Most of us don't know how the internet works. It works. We know <laughs> what we need to know is how to work with it, right? How do you use it? Same thing with every other evolving form of technology and ChatGPT, Bard, all these language-based products are are just another way for us to do our job better.
0: You mentioned uh, sending back that book, that integrated marketing book yeah. because it was obsolete. I want to get your opinion on just the current state of Education and I will try to uh, have it just be focused in college because that's where you're at. But there's there's a scary trend going on in K through 12 around curriculum and book banning and what's allowed in a library, and that's never a good thing. Book banning is just it's not. If you look back in history, the people or the uh, countries that banned books, it didn't go well after that, and so. With that context, it's, it has somehow moved up into colleges in the sense that certain people view colleges as indoctrination, or you go there and you learn XYZ and you leave and now you're part of it. The- what, what is your take on this? Because if for anyone who has gone through college, if it does anything well, if you had to pick one, in my opinion, it expands your horizon you meet new people, you you learn new things, you learn how to do new things, you learn how to interact with different people, different ecosystems, different parts of the world. That's the whole point is to expand, not constrict. And so I just want to get your thoughts on like the overall state. And it can just be focused in business. That's fine, too. But with that context, how how do you think uh, education fares in
1: 2023? So You know, we're we're all uh, products of our uh, upbringing, our families, our uh... And so if uh, if you look at the picture here behind me, that's my great grandfather who was burnt alive after books were the first thing to be burnt. And uh, in in Germany, and and there's a famous quote, and I'm embarrassed, I don't remember who said it, but uh, Mm -hmm. the quote was, in a place where they burn books, they'll end up burning people. And sure enough, uh, unfortunately, my family is living example of that and not so living anymore. Uh, And and so that's what the the source of my opinion about the answer to your question, uh, that's where it lies. I'm a big believer in in freedom of speech, freedom of opinion. You can and should voice whatever opinions you have, even if I find them to be objectionable, detestable, and I, I will fight for your right to voice those opinions. Uh, and then, if I if I think they are uh, to be combated, I will voice my my opinions against that. I will enter in a in into a debate and try to promote what I believe is the right thing to do, but I would never seek to ban you from saying yours. So so that's where I'm coming from. And luckily I'm in a business school. We don't deal with uh, politics in the way that most other non-business school entities do. We deal with politics in terms of how it impacts the markets, right? Mm -hmm. How it impacts uh, exchange rates, how it impacts uh, supply chain routes, That's important for us to know. And we could have opinions about that, but it doesn't and it shouldn't impact how we manage business. I can't think of any uh, sort of material that I would ever consider banning. And in fact, I think I told you, you know, some of the things that we're doing is we're trying to get more international content for our students taking them abroad to see things and the assumption is always we're taking them abroad to see the best case scenarios of things, right? And, th- and there's something to that, uh, you know, we're taking our MBA uh, students now who are focused on entrepreneurship and healthcare, we're taking them to Israel because they're, they're the leading market for entrepreneurship globally. So of course we're going to go there. But every once in a while we choose markets that are the worst, right? I've taken students to and I I hope I don't offend anyone but it's the truth. I've taken students to Greece to see what a complete shit show looks like because mm-hmm. that's also important to learn so so i could have just said ah you know forget greece they, they don't know how to do business let's just move on to the next thing no we need to learn so i can't imagine banning uh books on communism or buy or anything for that matter we need to uh teach how to think not what to think and by the way that's another thing that is uh quite unique for higher ed so while i agree that most criticism leveled against us is justified and as i said. I wholeheartedly believe that we higher ed play a critical role in in any society, certainly in the American society. As an immigrant, I can tell you, immigrants come here and the first thing they do is send their kids to college. They save, they work five jobs, they do whatever they can. There's a reason for that. And it goes back to what what you were asking before about ROI. It's way beyond ROI. The ROI isn't just financial for that. In this society, in the American society, graduating from college, on average gives you more than a million dollars lifetime earnings. That's significant. That's significant for you as an individual, for your family, for your community. And so we have have heavy responsibility and we need to do a better job uh, carrying it out.
0: Let's shift to Ohio X. So you serve on the the board there. Talk to us about the work, maybe for people that aren't aware, although you guys do an unbelievable job marketing and kind of getting out uh, the word around the work you're doing, but maybe for some of our listeners that don't know, Talk to us about what you guys do there and you know what's on the horizon.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm proud to be a founding board member of OhioX. Chris Berry uh, started this initiative with the intent to promote and advocate for technology in, in Ohio. We are an aspiring ecosystem for technology. When you ask people about technology, they won't automatically say Ohio. They'll say Silicon Valley. They'll say maybe New York, some other places, uh, but not Ohio. And so there's a discrepancy between that and the actual activity in Ohio. Uh, There's a lot of technology in in, in Ohio. There's a lot of uh, startups all the way to huge enterprises. You know, health systems are all about technology. And so we are trying to fill that void in terms of advocacy. The big GovTech event coming up in Columbus. The idea is to advocate for technology, just like every other group in this uh, state, that has significant participation in the economy, right? Uh, milk farmers have their own lobbying uh, body in 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 you know, in Columbus. A variety of other industries should and do have that. Technology, for some reason, up until a few years ago, didn't. And so we, we sort of uh, built that together from the ground up. I'm glad you, uh, you paid attention.
0: Yeah, no, you guys do a great job. Chris has been on the podcast. He's fantastic. We're going to get you out of here on this. Most guests say it's the hardest question of the episode. What are your go-to restaurants in Northeast Ohio or Cleveland? Could be breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Free advertising.
1: So for breakfast, nothing beats the original pancake house on uh, Chagrin Boulevard. Nice. It's ridiculous. Um, and, and in fact, if you have that for breakfast, you don't need uh, lunch. Yeah, you're done.
0: You're, yeah, you got to go take a nap.
1: Yeah. And, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention my dinner choice, which is also my happy hour choice with, with my wife Iris, and that's uh, Hyde Park uh, in Beachwood. Nice. great steak. And I've had great steaks everywhere. It, it It's right up there with all of them. And so I, I would never do both on the same day, though. <laughs> that
0: would be, yeah, that would be tough. You'd have to have a couple salads after that. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Hyde Park in Columbus, I always argue that... Uh, it's the best steakhouse here. I agree. It's fantastic. Yeah. Dr. Grinnell, this has been awesome. Uh, we could probably talk for another two hours and maybe we just need to have you on again and we'll uh, we'll just do some more deep dives. But this is great. We really appreciate you coming on and uh, you know, best of luck with the rest of the year and we'll talk with you soon. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Rust Belt Rundown. Make sure you check us out at rustbeltrecruiting.com. The Rust Belt Rundown is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and click on five stars if you enjoyed this episode. See you next time.